This is an ABC podcast. Hello, Lengitha, Maloni, and good morning. I'm your host, Eggie Dubo, and this is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Pacific Beat comes to you from the lands of the Boonarong and Rwandri peoples of the Kulin Nation. Yes, I am back for the new year, and I'm excited to keep you informed and to let you know what is happening on the show today. While the Pacific, they're saying yes to possible recruitment for the Australian Defence Force. We see this is not only for training, upskilling, and building capacity, but we see that there is trust and confidence in the Pacific family. We'll go live on the corruption uncovered in Vanuatu land ownership and taxing sugar-sweetened drinks in the Pacific to battle the high rates of diabetes and obesity. We do have some data from Fiji that that has shown since they imposed uh, their sugar-sweetened beverage tax, we've seen a uh, quite a significant drop away in the consumption of sugar-sweetened beverages and a swap towards uh, bottled water. For more on these stories, simply stay tuned. Again, I'm Aggie Dubon and this is Pacific Beat. Uh, We start off this morning with the Fiji Dental Association, though. They're warning of dodgy operators who are putting clients' health at risk. They're calling out beauty parlours in the country who are offering cosmetic dental work at bargain prices. The FDA says these parlours aren't licensed and they're using cheap products that could cause physical harm. Marion Farr reports. Dr Parakshath Naidu wants everyone in Fiji to have beautiful, healthy teeth. I'm the current president of the Fiji Dental Association, and I'm also a private practitioner running my practice here in Nandi. I've been a dentist for the last 20 years. But he says a growing trend in the country is putting people at risk. In in Fiji, there's a huge market. There's a huge demand to have some sort of tooth jewelry placed in their mouth from rubies, sapphires, um, gold, and even uh, diamonds. What started to happen now is a grey area where dentistry crosses over with cosmetic work. He's pointing the finger at some local beauty salons, which aren't licensed to do dental work. They were doing dental work, replacing missing teeth, putting cosmetic jewellery on teeth and operating on dental teeth from their saloons at very cheap price. Dr Naidu says the beauty parlours use materials that aren't safe for the mouth. When they would advertise that this is something that's cosmetic, uh, it's a jewellery, you can have um, a 22 karat gold fitted in for $5. The procedures was being done in unhygienic conditions and they were using toxic epoxies within patient's mouth. And when this kind of work failed and it became toxic. Uh, the, the metals they use um, started to corrode because of the mouth uh, is in a moist environment. He says the procedures can cause serious complications. Uh, we have heard reports where the gum tissue was burnt, the gum and the lips uh, were stuck together and when they were peeled off, it created blisters and ulcers and then the metal was uh, eroding, causing the teeth to start having massive amounts of decay. Some of the reports are extremely concerning. We have heard rumours that some of the patients had teeth operated on. The beautician used a filing instrument 
to chip off a tooth just before they could put um, a nail art on, on their teeth. Dr Naidu says eventually clients seek help from proper dentists. When the things went haywire, the people would go down to a dentist with a complaint that this is what happened, I'm so embarrassed with what has happened, can you please fix me up and let the dentist then has to fix up the problem. The Fiji Dental Association has issued an alert urging unlicensed operators to stop practising. Dr Naidu says the demand for dental cosmetics is on the rise. Our culture here is very similar to the Afro-Caribbean culture that they have. Yes, the R&B music industry, you see celebrities with grills and gold in their teeth. Fiji isn't the only place where this kind of look is popular. In Samoa, young people like Adelaide Akaola love to get gold teeth. I got my golden teeth when I was 16. It was my dad's gift for me on my sweet 16. She says her golden tooth holds special significance. It was my dad's golden necklace or bracelet, I'm not sure, but he said it was his gold that he would use for my golden tooth. And I think the reason why he got that is because it's precious to him. In her family, the trend has been passed down the generations. Well, my dad has one, my auntie has one, my mom has two. So I've grown up when I was little noticing them already having a golden tooth. We're not suggesting there are unlicensed practitioners doing these kinds of procedures in Samoa. Ms Akaola says getting her gold tooth put in was a simple procedure. So they melt the gold. It doesn't take that long. After they check in with the tooth to see the size and grill it down, then probably like just 20 minutes after it's done. But it doesn't hurt. I was really happy. I was really happy that I got my get my golden tooth. Back in Fiji, Dr Naidu says there's nothing wrong with these procedures so long as they're done safely. But he has one word of advice. Please, if you want to have something cosmetic placed on, why don't you trust your dental practitioner who's got the proper training tools and materials to do something very safely? And that's Fiji Dental Association President Dr Parakshaf Naidu ending that report. Now, a recruitment drive by the Australian Defence Force could be centred on the Pacific Island nations. The ADF is struggling to find the defence personnel it needs, so a new strategy is being devised to boost troop numbers by throwing open the doors to foreign nationals. Acting High Commissioner for Tonga in Canberra, Curtis Tuihalangingia, says they would welcome the Australian government turning to their Pacific neighbours for recruits. Well, we are very grateful that the Australian government consider some of the ideas that was presented from us, not only from Tonga, but from other Pacific Island countries such as uh, Fiji and Papua New Guinea. Uh, So we are quite happy and welcome the uh, decision that the Australian government is looking at and considering maybe for the future that we'll be able to welcome some uh, Tongan national to join the uh, esteemed Australian uh, defence. Why do you think it's a good idea? Uh, we see this is not only for training, upskilling and building capacity, but we see that there is trust and confidence in the Pacific family that we can be able to join and work together, not only in time of war or something, but it's 
for every day when there's a disaster, we by the time a natural disaster occur, they can just immediately go together where they're already used to working together because they've been drained and upskilled and built capacity. Would Tongans be expecting citizenship in return for serving in the Australian Defence Force? I think this is up to the Australian government. What are the requirements? What are the uh, decisions that they will present it after they make the, the final decision? This is not something new. We have the uh, Commonwealth uh, Regiment in the UK where most countries from the Commonwealth, which include Tonga, can join the British Army. And of course, not necessary immediately. They will possibly have three years of fire and then they can decide whether they will continue on to a citizenship pathway or return back or continue on as Tongan citizen. How much is China's growing assertiveness in the Pacific? How does that fit into the bigger picture, do you think? Mm, I think China is doing their own uh, work throughout the Pacific, but this was not something, oh, we hope because of China. No, we're just looking because for Tonga, Australia is our only defence partner, the top partner for Tonga, and we do not question that. So why do we have to, to, to look at China when Australia is our security partner? So Australia is the, the choice for Tonga to work with on the security issue. When you're talking about uh, this not only being about uh, conflict but also about natural disasters, uh, how do you think that ties into Tonga's concerns about climate change and getting some assistance there? Thank you for that question, Sally. Our security concern is mainly climate change and also natural disasters. As you know, we regularly have and more and more frequent natural disasters, cyclones, and let alone the massive volcanic eruption that hit Tonga 2022. So it's something that is our concern. And Australia is always the first to assist and first to help us. So that's why we think, why not? We have this special uh, relation already. Why don't we go beyond that, having some Tongan come here and work? And because we have seen during the disaster, Australia sent their defence, but also use some Tongan who are already in the Australian defence, who are Australian citizens, work and grow up here in Tonga to join because of the language, because of the culture uh, awareness. So we see the benefit that we will gain for from this idea that the Australian government is hoping to take up. What's the potential downside if this kind of plan were to go ahead? What worries you? I don't see any uh, worries. Some might say possibly the uh, brain drainage, mm. but this is just an option. We are not going to recruit to say you have no choice but to join. We provide the options and see who it's up to the people of Tonga and Fiji and uh, uh, Papua New Guinea, and I'm sure for the rest of the Pacific, whether they are willing to join or not. Are you expecting further conversations with the Australian government on this issue? I am confident, yes, uh, there will be once the Australian government have more details and formally inform us. As this conversation, we haven't had formal uh, requests whether this is the decision that they have made, but we welcome the uh, idea. And that is Curtis Tuihalangingia, Acting High Commissioner for Donga in Canberra, speaking to Sally Sarah.
Yes, welcome back to Pacific Beat. I'm your host, Aggie the Bowl, and yeah, it is that time to head around the region just to get the latest of all that is happening uh, with our communities, and uh, that's brought to you by producer Liam Fox this morning. How are you doing, sir? Good morning, Aggie. Good, <laughs> good. Happy Tuesday. Yeah, thank you very much for joining us again this morning. Uh, looks like PNG, Port Moresby's governor, says his new frequency bill uh, will apply to all urban centres, not just the nation's capital. What does this mean? Well, Powell Sparkop, he's the governor of uh, the National Capital District, which is effectively Port Moresby, the capital of PNG. He's been on a mission for some years now to uh, clean up Port Moresby. He wants it to make it the most livable city in the region. Uh, and as part of that, he's been uh, trying to get what he sees as problem settlers out of Port Moresby. Port Moresby's acted like a magnet for people from around the country uh, to come to. That's uh, caused these sprawling uh, settler settlements uh, where people are building informal houses, there's no proper infrastructure, it's also contributing to a lot of uh, crime and unsavoury behaviour in the re- in the, in Port Moresby. And uh, he says he'll now uh, present an amended vagrancy bill to Parliament next month. That will uh, uh, change the existing vagrancy bill in a couple of ways. According to the Post-Courier newspaper, it will remove ex- exclusion powers from police and place that power with the courts. Uh, It will also remove uh, poverty as a basis for exclusion orders. Instead, people who continuously breach municipal laws and those who are deemed not not fit and proper people to live in Port Moresby can be excluded by the courts, not the police. It will also place the duty on the people themselves to remove themselves from Port Moresby instead of uh, authorities having to, you know, round them up and put them on buses or planes and and get them out of Port Moresby. So they will have to remove themselves. And if they don't, then the courts can... uh, 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 sentence them to prison terms. Uh, he's also said that that will apply to all urban centres. It's it's not just a problem for Port Moresby, but for other places like Ley, uh, Madang, Mount Hagen. Um, and interestingly, it comes as uh, authorities in the North Fly District in West province conduct their own expulsion exercise. According to the Post-Courier newspaper, again, they have removed some 100 people from the district since Christmas time. They've even chartered flights to take people back to their home villages. Wow. Uh, Can I ask, though, Lima, are you aware, uh, I know it's going to be taken to Parliament next month, but do you think this is something that will actually pass? He says he's open to uh, consultation and making any amendments. So it's not clear at this stage uh, whether it will pass and what form it will pass in. As I mentioned before, he's he's been on this campaign for some time. So uh, remains to be seen, I guess. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, we're still staying in PNG. Now the Prime Minister, uh, James Marape, says he fears no one but God. So what's brought that about? Well, it's come to a sensitive time in the PNG political five-year cycle between elections, uh, and that is the end of the grace period, which prevents motions of no confidence from being moved against the government uh, since the 2022 election. It is now uh, at the February sitting of Parliament. It, it will be open to anyone to move a motion of no confidence against Mr Marape and his administration if they so desire, if they have the numbers. Uh, And so he's made these comments ahead of that, saying that um, uh, 
according to the national newspaper, there's uh, he fears no one but God and our people, and he will run the country till his time is up. Uh, the national reports that there's increasing speculation that a motion will be moved against him when Parliament sits in February, though it doesn't give any more details as to who might be behind that how many MPs might support that. Um, but uh, Mr Marape, as he said in the past, says uh, the government is not his private business and it is the right of other MPs uh, to leave his administration if they so desire and that he's going to run the country till his time is up. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and there is always this debacle around state and church and things like that. So it'll be interesting to see where this plays out. Uh, finally, though, Liam, the Methodist Church, they've warned its ministers to lay off cover and smokes. That's right. The Methodist Church in Fiji has sent a uh, strong reminder to its ministers against excessive smoking and carver drinking. Uh, This is according to FBC News. It's reporting that the church's president, Reverend Dr. Samisi Turangavao, stressed the need for pastors and church elders to set a good example for their congregations. Uh, He says that uh, he wants ministers not to smoke and not to drink carver from evening to midnight. Um, So this uh, call from the church to all church ministers and members uh, is to exercise more discipline on carver drinking and smoking. But it also he's also recognised that that it can be difficult given the uh, cultural significance carver has for the Fijian people. Yeah, absolutely. Who doesn't like a little bit of cover? (laughs) (laughs) Liam, thank you very much for joining us again this morning. We'll see you and catch up tomorrow. Thank you. My pleasure. No worries. You've been listening in to Pacific Beat. Join me, Sosefina Formoli, for On The Record, an hour-long deep dive into the music that has made an incredible range of artists from right across the Pacific. We'll discover stories behind songs of inspiration, songs of activism, songs of evolution and songs of pride as we chop it up with Pacifica musicians you already know and love and hopefully some you'll be meeting and falling in love with for the first time. On the record, Tuesdays at 4 o'clock PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. You're tuning in to Pacific Beat. I'm your host, Aggie Dubol. As we head to the Pacific region, where, yes, they are one of the leading areas in the world when it comes to taxing sugar-sweetened drinks and, in some cases, foods. It's in response to certain parts of the region having some of the world's highest rates of obesity and diabetes. Apologies. Professor Tim Gill is an academic, researcher and public health policy advisor on nutrition, obesity and chronic disease prevention from the Sydney University. He told Dubrovka Volodia what sort of effect sugar has on our health. Pacific uh, island countries and territories are actually one of the leaders throughout the world in terms of the imposition of um, sugar taxes or more appropriately sugar-sweetened beverage taxes. So as of uh, earlier this year, um, there were 16 out of uh, possible 21 countries within this region that actually had some form of a sugar-sweetened beverage tax, whether that be on imported sugar-sweetened beverages or on imported and locally produced sugar-sweetened beverages. Are there any notable countries that you can think of that have done particularly well in that regard? Tonga was one of the first. Tonga and uh, French Polynesia were uh, some of the first countries uh, in the world, in fact, to impose uh, sugar-sweetened beverage taxes. And so they've had a lot more experience with them and have uh, over the time manipulated them to um, 
try and influence the consumption of sugar-sweetened beverages to a greater extent. Unfortunately, there's not a great deal of monitoring of the consumption of these products across the region, um, so we don't have a, um, a huge uh, amount of data on which to evaluate uh, how effective these strategies have been. Um, we do have some data from Fiji that, that has shown since they imposed uh, their sugar sweetened beverage tax, we've seen a uh, quite a significant drop away in the consumption of sugar sweetened beverages and a swap towards uh, bottled water. But what we do have is very good data from other countries throughout the, the world and um, other comparable uh, middle income or lower to middle income countries, um, particularly Mexico, Chile, um, some Latin American um, countries. Uh, where they've been following um, the impact of the tax um, quite closely um, and we've seen uh, really significant drop-aways in the consumption of sweet beverages in these countries. So Mexico uh, published their results a few years ago um, and Chile uh, have, have, have just published them. Um, you know, showing, um, you know, quite a significant up to 20% reduction in sugar sweetened beverage consumption. Now, that mightn't seem like a lot, um, but over a time, um, that adds up to a considerable amount uh, less consumption of sugar and the associated health problems with it. And if we talk about sugar tax, how does it work? It, how is it being passed down to the consumer? Well, that's a good question because, in fact, it's not a sugar tax per se, and that's one of the criticisms that uh, particularly the food industry makes, is that you're not taxing sugar, you're picking on one particular uh, you know, item, food item, and that's sugar-sweetened beverages. So uh, just about all the sugar taxes throughout the world, uh, apart from a few countries, just tax sugar-sweetened beverages. And that's because, uh, you know, if you're going to impose a tax, you've got to be able to be sure that you're going to uh, be able to impose it in the way that it's designed. Um, so sugar-sweetened beverages are obviously a very discreet category of products and they're easy to define what is a sugar-sweetened beverage and what's not. Um, so when we impose a, a sugar tax per se, we're imposing it on, on sugar-sweetened beverages. And there's a few ways that it can be done. Um, the first and simplest way of imposing the tax is what's called ad valorem. So you just increase, uh, add a percentage tax on top of the retail price. Um, and the reason why that's so popular, and this one that's used mostly throughout the world and is actually re uh, recommended by the World Health Organization, is that it's, it's easy to collect and, and it's simple. And most countries uh, use that sort of system in their goods and services tax and, and things like that. Um, the problem with, with just adding a percentage price increase and the, the most common price increase is 20%. And, and that, were, again, was a, a level recommended by the World Health Organization. Um, the problem with that is that quite often uh, manufacturers get around that by discounting their wholesale price to retailers um, so that the size of the uh, tax, the amount it adds to the overall retail price, isn't as uh, significant as, as you would hope. Um, so there are other ways of, of imposing a tax. The, the other sort of most common sort of way is a, um, a volumetric sort of approach. So we say for every litre of sugar sweetened beverages that's produced or imported, we're going to tax you at this rate. Now, to an extent, that 
um, also overcomes some of the problems. But what it doesn't discriminate is between beverages that are lower sugar and beverages that are at higher sugar. So there are some countries, including um, uh, French Polynesia and Vanuatu to an extent, that actually impose the tax um, not just on the volume that's produced, but also the proportion of sugar in the product. So the tax is imposed on the amount of sugar that's actually contained within the product. And has that led some food producers to leave out the sugar and substitute it with other sweeteners? And what sort of effect does that have on people's health? Uh, that's another good question. Um, certainly when the UK introduced their sugar tax, which was both volumetric and uh, dependent upon the proportion of sugar in the product, what they found was For years, uh, sugar and beverage manufacturers say, oh, we can't reduce the amount of sugar in, in our product because it won't taste the same and consumers won't accept it. And immediately before they introduced their tax, where they had different levels of tax depending upon the amount of sugar in the beverage, they found that uh, just about every uh, sugar sweetened beverage manufacturer was able to reduce their uh, sugar content below Uh, the level that um, imposed a lower level of tax upon their production. Um, so clearly, uh, if you impose a, a tax on, on the basis of the amount of sugar in the product, uh, what it does result is in a greater um, amount or availability of lower sugar, uh, sugar sweet beverages. But as you also point out, what it does result in is possibly an increased use of um, intense sweeteners, or what we used to call artificial sweeteners. And over time, um, whilst we used to believe uh, the replacing sugar with these intense sweeteners or artificial sweeteners would be beneficial, um, the results don't necessarily show that. Uh, the results tend to suggest that artificially sweetened beverages are not much better than those sweetened totally with sugar. The health lobby is a little bit sort of undecided about whether there are benefits in consuming what we would call artificially, what everyone knows is artificially sweetened uh, beverages compared to sugar-sweetened beverages. And in many cases, uh, those that impose uh, sugar taxes make no distinction between those that, that have been sweetened um, with cane sugar and those that have been sweetened with these intense or artificial sweetness. Mm. Interesting. And tell us, what is, what is the connection between sugary drinks or sugar consumption as such and the high rates of obesity and diabetes that we see in a lot of Pacific communities? You know, if I was going to be honest, I'd have to say that we're still not absolutely sure. But what we do see is a very strong connection between the level of consumption of sugar-sweetened beverages And increases in rates of uh, overweight and obesity, increases in rates of diabetes, leading on to increase in rates of other uh, non-communicable diseases such as uh, coronary heart disease. And there's some obvious reasons for that. The first, of course, is that sugar um, is uh, quite uh, has quite a number of calories in it, so that uh, if you're consuming sugar. Um, instead of water, sugar sweet beverage instead of water, then obviously you're getting quite a considerable number of extra calories, which is going to add to the risk of developing weight, uh, obesity, and then going on to diabetes. Um, the other thing that has been found through research is that 
Um, usually the body is pretty good at accounting for the number of calories that we consume. And that's how we try and keep our weight relatively uh, within, um, you know, stable levels across time. And that's because our body can sense that we're consuming this amount of food uh, equivalent to this amount of calories, which is what we need. What we do know is when you consume calories in the form of a liquid, you bypass a lot of those mechanisms that help regulate appetite and prevent us from overconsuming. Um, so that's another potential reason um, sugar is associated with increased obesity, diabetes. But we also know now that when you consume a lot of sugar and a lot of foods containing sugar, and particularly a lot of what we call these ultra-processed foods, that not only have sugar but also have a whole lot of other byproducts of, of, of food which we wouldn't necessarily find in, in whole food, is that it upsets the bacteria in your gut. And that bacteria in your gut has quite profound effects on your health, uh, not only uh, helps digest, but it also works on the products that pass through the digest digestive phase of your gut and produces other compounds from it, some of which are beneficial and some of which are quite harmful um, to our health. So there's probably a range of reasons why uh, sugar is not great for our health, but one of the biggest impacts that sugar has on our health is on dental health. And that is indisputable that high levels of um, sugar across your teeth uh, leads to much higher rates of dental um, decay. And that's one of the most expensive conditions to treat. And it, it ends up costing countries, particularly low-income countries, quite a lot to deal with. Pacific Beat. Now, Pacific Island workers are among those starting a new life in Australia, and making connections can often be difficult. A program run by the Red Cross in Tasmania is trying to bridge that gap by arranging group activities for socially isolated migrant women. This report from Alexandra Humphreys. It's Meditation Day at the Connected Women Tasmania program in Moona, in Hobart's northern suburbs. It's just one of the activities the group's done together in the past few months. They've also enjoyed dancing, cooking, makeup, and art sessions. Chu is the group's coordinator. The most recent thing is uh, we had an excursion to Signet just two weeks ago. Uh, during winter, we went to Timac, uh, so the children can also join the mothers. So that's the local museum? Yes, correct. Um, that's a local museum. It's uh, probably the first time all the children would see the Tasmanian devil and learn how they, uh, their natural habitat. The women in the group have migrated from about 30 different nations. Chu has moved here from Vietnam. It is to support women from migrant and refugees background and their families to help find their feet and belonging, develop the social belonging into Tasmania. Um, it's a safe place for everyone to come and ask questions, volunteer, or like just enjoy a new life here. It helps me a lot. Cholpon migrated from Kyrgyzstan in Central Asia last year. This uh, group, um, since I arrived new uh, to Australia, uh, by joining this group, I met uh, a lot of friends. So uh, many different uh, women uh, from different countries, uh, we are uh, meeting in this place. And we are sharing our experience um, uh, through this group. I found um, connection 
contacts and this group helps me uh, to settle in Australia and um, be um, friends. Now the groups joined forces to launch a cookbook, bringing together recipes from their different cultures. I do have a recipe in cookbook. I did um, our traditional food called manti. Um, manti is our um, like a traditional um, main uh, food where we are all coming together and um, yeah, when guests are coming to our home we usually do this. Cooking Together offers the women an opportunity to share memories. As the group's coordinator, Chu explains. Everyone will cook their speciality in their culture, um, explaining with um, the stories why do they choose this recipe and usually it comes in with a very personal story about their family and um, where they come from. See, this is the, uh, an original poncho. Now, ponchos are very popular now, but this is original from the south of Chile. 82-year-old Isabel migrated to Tasmania from Chile in South America. She's brought along items of traditional dress for the cookbook launch. She's enjoyed the process of putting the book together. Oh, yes, a very good experience, yes. And we, uh, we get to know all the other, um, the other cultures, you know, but... Although we have plenty now, but it's always something new. So tell me about the recipe you have in there. It's, it's something that you can make at home easily and tasty. You have tomatoes, onions, parsley, and a bit of chilli. The chilli salsa, it goes with meat, fish, and soups. Each page part of a recipe for support. The cookbooks are available from Hobart's Red Cross. And that's Alexandra Humphreys reporting there. Hi, I'm Sayuli Salamasinovan-Raiki, and I invite you to come with me to explore how our Pacific cultures have evolved with the changing times in a new show, Culture Compass. You'll meet people who are passionate about keeping traditions alive, passing them down to the next generation while adapting old ways to the present. Culture Compass, Tuesdays at 9am PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. You're tuning in to Pacific Beat. I'm your host, Aggie the Ball, as we head to some artists in Cook Islands who have unveiled a seawall mural spanning more than 500 metres, showcasing wildlife from across the country's 15 islands. Te Po Tu Toru, or Three Pillars, was two years in the making for local artist Katu Teiti and Ashley Chalana and Mexican artist Gonzalo Aldana. And they were helped along the way by curious uh, curious tourists who wanted to try their hand at painting. Teiti told Mackenzie Smith that he was unfazed by the prospect of painting the 562-metre wall. Well, not really. I was kind of like excited, yeah. Uh, about time I used my skills again. So, yeah, it, it wasn't really intimidated. But the thing was, we thought it would be just in a short period of time. But it actually extended to nearly two years. What can you tell me about the kinds of stories that the seawall tells? Well, the the whole theme about the whole um, mural was based on the company that was actually sponsoring us, which is Marae Moana, the Sea Ecology. So the theme was actually based on the preservation of the ocean or about the ocean. So mainly what was, what, was, uh, what is on the, the mural is basically... Uh, portraying each of the 15 islands in the Cook Islands. 
each of what is very specific to that particular island, you know, what kind of fish is kind of popular or what they have or what they eat. So mainly it's the, each island has their own um, uh, fish type, the base on, yeah, based on the theme of ocean. So that was basically the whole theme of the whole mural was about the, the ocean. And what it is for each island, what is iconic. So those are the extra other things apart from what is in the ocean. So, yeah, so that's basically the whole theme about the whole mural. And what's the perception been like from the public so far? Yeah, there was, uh, when we actually started, there was some, uh, yeah, you're going to distract uh, drivers on, on the main road, on the road, uh, the accidents, because that that seawall, uh, it's it's a uh, story or history. There were quite a few uh, uh, mis mishaps, you know, like accidents uh, in the area. So that was the uh, the whole whole um, response from from public, but not not everybody. Yeah, but yeah, because of its history. So it, it would distract uh, motorists coming along and looking at the. Uh, the mural. So, but then later on, um, was the, the 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 response was really really great. We had people stopping by, you know, buying us drinks, water, uh, food, you know, snacks, beer. Oh, awesome! Yeah, that was really awesome. After a couple of weeks, yeah. So that was uh, the whole response from from public. Sea walls are increasingly the last line of defence against rising sea levels. How does climate change inform the mural? Well, the sea wall was there just to protect, yeah, of course, uh, to protect it from the sea. And that wall was kind of like uh, just plain and, let's say, ugly. <laughs> so, yeah, on, on, on the uh, last line of defence, yes, from cyclone and that seawall has been smashed by how many cyclones that we've had. Yeah. And it still stood against uh, the big waves. Only a couple of uh, cracks. And that was Cook Island's artist Katudeiti speaking with Mackenzie Smith. Pacific Beat. And apologies, we weren't able to get a hold of our guest in regards to the story in, uh, for corruption land there in Vanuatu. So we will keep trying and hopefully we can get our guest on for tomorrow. Well, climbing the highest mountain in PNG might not sound like a holiday to some people, but it was how one medical doctor decided to spend his Christmas break. Dr Arnold Weiner, a, a surgeon at the Port Moresby General Hospital, hiked to the top of Mount Willem to raise money for sick children. And he didn't do it alone. His four children tagging along for the journey. Marion Fire spoke with Dr. Wine and his daughter Gillesi about the motivation behind the trip. Recently when I was just basically going to get my break, holidays, one of those patients that we look after at the Podmos General Hospital is with this condition called hydrocephalus. Basically hydrocephalus means the fluid that uh, is in the brain and the spine. This gets blocked in the head due to diseases like TB or infections like meningitis. And then the head, you know, gets bigger as the volume increases. So you have these very big, you know, kids or children with big heads filled with fluid. And it just needs one tube 
and it's got a small pressure gets against it so that depends on the pressure it can drain the fluid so it reduces from accumulating and eventually you know it gets the brain function so these kind of basic things like tubes are not available most of the times. So as I was clocking out to get my holidays, you know, I saw this miserable baby and I thought, you know, what can I do for this Christmas for him? So I decided that um, I should raise some funding at least to pay for one of those tubes or a couple of those tubes for some other more patients around in the country. Your fundraiser activity was to climb Mount Wilhelm, which is the highest mountain in Papua New Guinea. Why was that sort of an important way for you to fundraise for this child? <laughs> yeah. First is, yes, you're right, um, it's the highest mountain in the country. And doing this basically to bring that agenda to higher platform, to people to know you know, basic needs and wants in hospitals in the country. So that was the one reason. The other reason is um, Mount William is located in my district, my own town and district. So it's basically like I'm going back to home for holidays, basically taking the family, actually the children with me uh, to the kind of a backyard mountain. Yeah, to do that climb and it's for the same cause, um, do this fundraising, walk, climb up the mountain. I've done a couple already. This will be my 16th one. <laughs> so you're no stranger at all to, to Mount Wilhelm. Um, how, how was the journey? Was it, um, was it difficult and how did your kids go? Up, the, up to the summit, um, it's still the same. The track is still the same. Not much has changed. Uh, the geography is still the same. But, um, you know, you are climbing up every time and you need to have, you know, time to rest in between the long walks or climbs. So for the new ones, um, it can be very, very tiring. And a lot of the people, when they do the climb, um, a lot of them, just, you know, they just kind of stop somewhere halfway or three quarters through because it's quite very, very um, difficult, in fact. <laughs> we did, um, the three children and I and plus the other uh, family members in the village, uh, we all did the work. Two children went as far as the second lake, which is um, near, close by. But uh, my daughter went with me all the way through to the summit. It was very difficult. My name is Kelsey Weiner. I'm doing grade 10. I stayed a night at Betty's Lodge first. And there they have like a map of the hike. So when I was looking at it, it was really long. And uh, yeah, and then when I actually walked, like I did the hike, the first few hours were okay, but then it started getting more tricky as we were going up more mountains. When it was getting really, really difficult and you didn't think you were going to make it to the top, what was it that kept you going? Well, I was just thinking, like, I've already come all this way. Like, why wouldn't I go to the top, you know? How did it feel when you did finally make it to the summit of the mountain? When I finally made it to the summit, I was really happy. Like, I couldn't stop smiling. I was really proud and, yeah, I was looking around. What did it mean to you to be involved in this cause of raising awareness? 
Yes, I'm really happy to be also supporting that cause because a lot of children need this treatment and the supply is not, not um, provided here in PNG. I've completed basically the climb. And um, when I'm back in Mosby next week, I'll follow up on the tube and I'll follow up on the patient. And the point is that this is not the only time we'll continue to raise uh, some more fundraising for Adrika Forest children in Papua New Guinea. And that was Papua New Guinean surgeon Dr. Arnold Waine with his daughter Kelesi speaking with Marion Farr. I'll be back same time tomorrow, 6 a.m. PNG time. Stay tuned because news is next, followed by Nisha Daily.